our, our monthly prayer service. And we're going to talk about tonight praying dangerous prayers. Now, I call these prayers dangerous because they are prayers God always answers. And, and that what makes those prayers dangerous is God's answers to this prayer are life-changing. Right? If we take what God says in response to these prayers, we put them into practice, we will not be the same. Uh, and then God will answer these prayers in ways we do not expect. So if you just turn to, uh, I think it's Psalm 139, page 477. You don't have to stand. We're just going to read these and look at the, the whole psalm. But verses 23 and 24 will be where our dangerous prayers come from. Search me, God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Now, every text has a context in our dangerous prayers from verses 23 and 24 are no different. And the context of Psalm 139 helps us to understand why we can and really why we should pray these dangerous prayers. Psalm 139 gives us tremendous information about our relationship with God. And what Psalm 139 teaches us about our relationship with God motivates us to pray these prayers and trust God's answers to these prayers. Now, there are four truths about our relationship with God given in the first part of this psalm. Number one is God knows everything about us. Right now, again, this is probably not new information. God knows everything about us, but this is important information. Right, one of the reasons we can pray these dangerous prayers we're going to look at with absolute confidence is because God knows everything about us. Now, verse 1 says, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Right, so God has already searched us. God is already aware of us. He already knows all there is to know about us. But the psalmist does a brilliant thing here in that he doesn't leave the idea of God knowing everything about us in the realm of a generalized statement. God knows all things about us. He gives us very specific ways God knows everything about us. God knows everything we do. You know when I sit down and when I get up. Sit down and get up is kind of a, an idiom meaning that God knows everything we do. There is no action in our life that we take. God is not fully aware of. He knows everything about everything we do in every aspect of our life. God knows everything we think. You understand my thoughts from afar away. God only knows our actions. God knows our thoughts. He knows the thoughts we act on and he knows the thoughts we don't act on. He knows the thoughts we think about the person who was rude at the grocery store. And he knows the thoughts we think about your pastor when he goes over past noon on Sunday mornings. Every thought we think, even if we never verbalize it, is fully known to God. God knows everywhere we go. You have scrutinized my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all of my ways. No matter where we go in our life, no matter where we've been, God knows everything about everywhere we've ever been. God knows everything about everywhere we ever go. And God knows everything about everywhere we will ever go in our life. God knows everything. He knows everywhere we go. And then God knows everything we say. In verse 4. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. God knows everything we say. 
Right? He knows all the good things we say and all the bad things we say. He knows the things we mutter under our breath that the people around us don't hear. He knows the things we whisper in secret to people. He knows everything about everything that we have ever said. God knows everything about us. Secondly, God is always with us. Now, the reason we can pray confidently these dangerous prayers is because God is always with us. Uh, Once again, the psalmist does not leave this in the realm of a general God is with us, but he gives us some very specifics about God being with us. He tells us we cannot run from God. Verse seven, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, behold, you're there. If I take up wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there. Your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. There is nowhere we can go to get away from God. There is nowhere we can run and and be away from God, no matter what that is. We we learn this from the, the, the prophet Jonah, who fled from God to keep from having to go to where to Nineveh, where God wanted him to go. And God sought him and God grabbed him and God got him. And so God is always with us. We cannot run from God and neither can we hide from God. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now, I think the idea here is trying to hide our actions from God. Verse the previous is trying to run away from God. God's working in our lives and we're trying to get away from him. But God is always with us and he goes with us there. And then we're trying to hide our actions from the Lord, trying to do things in secret. We know God would not have us to do. But even there, God sees. God sees what we do, whether it's daylight or dark or in public or at home where nobody else is around. He sees all of those things clearly. No matter what we do, God sees. We cannot hide from God. Thirdly, God knows everything about us. God is always with us. And then thirdly, God created us. Uh, verse 13 through 15 is a pretty familiar passage. And it gives us some neat information about God's active work in our lives. For you created my innermost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully formed in the depths of the earth. And this is just an overall picture of God creating us. But this is the psalmist is saying, God, God made us. God made us and he made us the way he wanted to make us. Right. We are all, as the more common translation, fearfully and wonderfully made. We are made on purpose for a purpose by God. Right. And so we can trust him. To pray these dangerous prayers because the God we're praying to is the God who formed us and created us and made us like he wanted us to be. And then finally, the last one, God has precious plans for us. How precious also in verse 17 or verse 16. I'm sorry. Your eyes have seen my formless substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious Are your thoughts for me, God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God's knowledge of our life extends to it started. He knew all about our lives before we were born. And he knows all about the things that are yet to happen. 
And, and the part I really want us to focus on is that God has plans. He has precious thoughts and these plans that he has for us. Right. So there is there are good plans, plans to prosper us. Uh, Jeremiah would say plans to give us a future and a hope. These are God's plans. There are many. They are vast. So many they cannot be numbered. And they are good plans for our good, for his glory. Therefore, because God knows everything about us, we can pray these prayers to him. Because God is always with us, we can pray these prayers to Him. Because God created us and He has precious plans for us, we can pray these prayers because we know the God who does all of that with us and for us has our best interests at heart. Always. So we can pray these confidently. However... These, this knowledge of who God is and what God has with us is also a part of what makes these prayers so dangerous. If we pray these prayers, God knows if the prayer is genuine because he knows our thoughts and our words before we speak them. If we pray these prayers, God's answer is always right because he knows everything there is to know about us. He knows how we were created, why we were created, and the purpose for which we were created. So God's answer to these prayers is always right. So I can't fool God. I can't fake God out by praying in a way and and tricking Him. But neither can I say, God, but that's not right. This isn't, no, you, you just don't know all the thing there is to know. No, He does. So now we'll look at these Well, before we look at the dangerous prayers, we're going to spend time and just pray, focusing on on these aspects that God knows everything about us. God is always with us. God created us. God has precious plans for us. These are reasons to rejoice. These are reasons to praise God and thank God. And so let's take a few minutes and let's spend time praying to God about these things. Holy Father, we come and we bow in awe at what you know about us. Father, you not only know the good things we want everyone to know about, but you know the hidden things, the dark things, the things we're ashamed of, the things we try to cover. And Lord, despite knowing those things about us, you still love us. You still work in us and you work through us and you work for us. You still have precious plans for us. And so God, today as we begin to look at these dangerous prayers, help us to trust You. To trust the the God who knows everything about us. The God who is always with us. The God who created us. The God who has precious plans for us will answer in right ways. Will answer in ways that will lead us along the best path for our lives. 
Let us pray as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 5 where he would lift up his voice to you and then he would watch for the answer to come. Give us ears to hear how you answer these prayers and give us hearts to run after what you say to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, four dangerous prayers. Number one, search us. Right, so verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. When we pray for God to search us, we are praying for Him to search our hearts. Now, this is important because in, in, in God's Word, the heart is the seat of the will and not the seat of the emotions. Right? In, in the biblical world, the heart was what determined what we did. Basically, what we see in through, all throughout God's Word is the surest way to know what our heart is like is to look at our lives. Right? For instance, Jesus says what comes out of the heart, what comes out of the mouth is what? It is the abundance of the heart. Jesus said our actions demonstrate what's in our heart in Mark chapter 7. So our words, our attitudes, our actions day in and day out reveal what's in our heart and reveal the condition of our heart. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says we have to guard our hearts. Because out of it come the issues of our life. What is in our heart will come out in our thoughts, in our words, in our values, in our priorities, and in our life. The heart is the very core of our being. So a search me prayer is asking God to search our hearts and expose whatever is there. Particularly to expose what's wrong. What might not be as it ought to be in our hearts. And only God can search our hearts in this way. Look at what we're told. The heart is more deceitful than all else. And it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, which we'll talk about in a minute. To give each person according to his ways, according to the results... Of his deed. The human heart is deceitful. The human heart is desperately sick. Even a redeemed heart retains its fallen and deceitful condition. Therefore, our hearts can deceive us into thinking all is well when all is not well. Many ways we could see this, but I think the primary way that we see the deceitfulness of the human heart is in our ability to justify ourselves. Think about what we've seen in our study in Revelation 2 and 3 when we look through that. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus sends letters to churches who were loveless, following false teachers, neck deep in iniquity, resting on past accomplishments and lukewarm. Yet, each church thought they were fine. How did they get to that place? How did a church that was lukewarm think that it was rich and increased in goods and had need of nothing? How did a church that was dead live on the fact it had a reputation for being alive and think that was okay? It was because their deceitful heart had had come up with ways to justify their living. Had justify the false teaching they were embracing. To justify the iniquity of their lives. And it's not just the seven churches. We are all capable of doing this. The heart deceives us into thinking there are justifications 
for how we're living and the things we're doing, even though they are contrary to God's word. The heart deceives us into thinking we're the exception to the rule. The heart deceives us into thinking it will all be okay if we ignore God and do our own thing. There is, however, one the heart cannot deceive. God. God alone knows the human heart. God alone can search our heart. God can be what we cannot be about our hearts. God can be unbiased. God can be fair. And God can be accurate. We cannot be those things about ourselves. We all fall into either being too hard on ourselves or too easy on ourselves. We will justify ourselves or we will condemn ourselves. We will make things fit the way we think they ought to fit. Or we will twist it in some other way. But God will be unbiased, accurate, and fair. God alone must search our hearts. And so we pray the dangerous prayer. Search my heart, O God. So let's take a few minutes and we'll pray this dangerous prayer right now. Heavenly Father, we come tonight and we do bow and surrender. We open our hearts up to you. Father, you know our hearts already. You know it. You know what's there. You know what's wrong, what's not as it ought to be. So we ask you, Father, to search it, but to reveal it. Father, we don't want anything in our lives. It's not not what you'd want us to have. Not a thought, not an attitude, not an action. Not anything. So Father, search our hearts and and try it. Search our hearts and show us what is not as it ought to be. And Father, as we see, as you clearly reveal to us what is not as it ought to be in our hearts, let us repent of it. Let us turn from it. Let us forsake it to the best of our abilities, God. Let us not minimize it and justify it. Let us not listen To the enemy that would tell us it's okay. But let us listen to you. Let us listen to your word. And let us listen to your spirit. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Second. Test us. Put me to the test. And know my my Bible says anxious thoughts. Some Bibles say anxieties. Others just say thoughts. Now the word test. Refers to a critical evaluation. To a certain aspect of our lives. In this case. Our thoughts. We need God to critically examine our minds to see if our thinking is consistent with His will as revealed in His Word. And again, this comes back to He tests the mind. 
Right? We, we cannot accurately test our own minds. Why? Why do we need God to test our minds? Well, first is Satan seeks to deceive us. You have your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar, the father of lies. Over and over again, God's word reveals to us Satan is a liar and a deceiver and the one who deceives the whole world. Our, our, our world, our culture is flooded with various lies of the enemy. Now, sometimes these lies are specifically targeted at unbelievers. For instance, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan blinds people's minds to the truth to keep them from, from the truth of the gospel, to keep them from believing it and being saved. Right? He is convincing the lost they don't need Jesus. He's convincing them their sin is not that big of a deal. He's convincing them they don't need the gospel and they don't need the salvation Jesus died to provide. But it's not just unbelievers that Satan is trying to deceive. If possible, he would absolutely deceive us as well. Remember, Jesus warned us about this. He warned about do not be deceived over and over again, particularly as he taught about the end times. He said, do not be misled. Do not be deceived. Satan is not just trying to, to deceive the lost to keep them lost. He's trying to deceive us in one way or another. Now, the, one of the issues about being deceived is you don't know you're deceived if you're deceived. So how are we going to know if we have bought into one of his lies? Certainly we can examine ourselves and say it because if nothing else, we're proud. Because what we would say is this. Well, I would never be taken in by a lie. I know the Bible too well. I, I pay too close attention. I would never be taken in. And make no mistake, an I would never statement is absolutely the pride that goes before destruction. And so we need God to test our minds because Satan is seeking to deceive us. But not only is Satan seeking to deceive us, we deceive ourselves. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers only who deceive themselves. There are people all over the world who read God's Word, listen to God's Word, and, and then walk away without ever putting it into practice, convinced that what they've done is enough. And yet what James tells us is that if we hear and don't do, we deceive ourselves. But it's never enough to just read God's Word. It's never enough to just listen to God's Word. We're always meant to live God's Word. And any time we read something and God's word says this is how you're supposed to think or this is how you're supposed to live or this is what you're supposed to believe. And we say, well, I'm not going to do that, but I've read about it. And so that's fine. We deceive ourselves and we open ourselves up to more deception. And again, this is one of those areas where our pride would lead us to say, well, I would never do that. And that's, again, I would never is a pride statement, probably almost guaranteeing we are deceived in one way or another. We deceive ourselves. And so we need God to test our minds. And then deception brings terrible consequences. The eye is the lamp of the body so that if our eye is clear, the whole body is 
will be full of light, but if your eyes bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now these verses are a bit of a challenge to understand because our culture is so different from the one Jesus preached. The background of this statement is kind of the idea of the Jewish concept, the eyes being the window to the soul. In part, the idea is that the it lets in what in what you look at is goes into controlling your thought life. What goes in through your eyes determines what you think about, and what you think about determines who you are. If you think about it, that makes sense. Because we if we look at something, we think about it no matter what it is. If we think about it long enough, we begin to kind of embrace whatever's going on. And once we embrace it, it determines who we are. It determines how we live our lives, what we're going to do. What we think about, what we look at, we think about. What we think about, we become. So what we let in our mind and what we embrace as truth or as the foundation of truth in our lives will determine who we are and what we do. Now, Jesus here contrasts light with darkness. And in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, light would be God's word. Darkness would be basically everything else. Jesus says if the light that is in us is darkness, the darkness will be great indeed because we are deceived. A person who is deceived about their foundation of truth will think they're right. And they will think they are on, they are filled with light and they are on the path to life when they are wrong. And they are filled with darkness and they are on the path that leads to death. One of the things that's hard for us as people, again, with pride, is we think because we feel something, that makes it right. But the reality is our feelings, what we feel to be right, doesn't mean it is right. There is a way which seems right, but the end of that way is death. A person who is wrong but deceived into believing they are right, is far more difficult to convince they are wrong than someone who is pretty sure they're wrong or just doesn't know what is right. And pride is what makes us pretty sure we're right. Pride is what makes us say, I do know, and I'm not wrong. And we can't overcome that On our own abilities. We need God to test our thoughts. Because deception in the end will bring terrible consequences into our lives. And so we want to be sure we pray, God, test my thoughts. Test what I believe. Test what I am thinking on. Am I thinking on things that are right and true and good and pure? While I may profess your word as the foundation of truth in my life, is it? Do I believe things your word says that are wrong? Not just, you know, this is, you see it that way and I can see it that way. There are some things like that, but foundationally wrong. God, test our thoughts. So let's spend time praying for God to test our thoughts.
Heavenly Father, we come tonight. We surrender our minds to you. Father, test our thoughts and see if if what we think, what we believe, see if it's right, see if it's true, see if it's consistent with your word. Father, the enemy is a deceiver and he he is bombarding us on a daily basis with lies. And it would only be by your grace and your spirit and your word we're not led astray by those things. Search our minds to see if there's any way in which we have bought into the enemy's lies in one way or another. Father, it's far easier to read your word than it is to do your word. And yet when we do that, we deceive ourselves. So search us, test our thoughts and see if we are self-deceived in one way or another. Something we know you have told us in your word to do or not to do and We've deceived ourselves into thinking we'll be the exception to that. Test our thoughts and see if we're self-deceived. And Father, we're here tonight because we want the light that is in us to be light. We want the foundation of truth in our lives to be your word. We don't want to be deceived. So Father, shine your light in our minds. And if there is any area where we have... We are deceived into believing wrong things. And the light that is in us is really darkness. Shine light there and let us see the truth for what it is. And let us embrace it no matter what. Father, if we need to be humbled, humble us. Don't let us, through our arrogance, be deceived. Test our thoughts. Show us what's wrong. Lead us to repent. And we will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Third one is break us. Right? What is our attitude toward actions, speech, attitudes in our life that are not pleasing to God? Right? See if there is any hurtful way in me. This prayer is... More than asking God to show us what's wrong in what we in our heart, what's wrong in what we think, what's wrong in what we do. But it's also asking him to help us to feel about those things and the way he feels about them. If anything in our lives is not pleasing to God, we need to go beyond asking God just to show us. We need to ask him to break our hearts over these things. In the New Testament, Paul said brokenness leads to repentance. The sorrow, that's what he's talking about, that that is according to the will of God, produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. We've talked about this often, but just as a reminder, the sorrow of the world is, is sorrow that is based upon maybe shame. I got caught, I'm embarrassed, I'm sorry. Sorrow of the world is sorrow based on fear. I sinned. God might break my legs. I'm sorry. None of that is the kind of sorrow that leaves us without regret. The sorrow that leaves us without regret is the sorrow that we've sinned. I'm sorry my attitude was wrong. 
I'm sorry I have these things in my heart. I'm sorry I say this or do this or act like this. I'm sorry I did it. Whether anyone ever sees it or not. Whether there's any sort of physical punishment for it or not. I'm just sorry, Lord, I've sinned against you. Now, two things that are interesting. One is, I like the way my new, my new American Standard calls it the hurtful way. And it gives a, a footnote down here that says very literally that could be translated as the way of pain. So this is, again, a part of the goodness of God. Why do we want God to break us over hurtful things in our life? It's not because they hurt His feelings. It's because these things leave pain in our lives. It is a hurtful way. We are the ones who will, who will hurt if we keep in this way. We are the ones who will benefit if we turn from this way. It is for our good for God to break us. And when God breaks us and when we repent, we don't regret it. No one... Who has genuinely repented of their sins and gone the way of Jesus ever looks back with regret at that repentance. The only repentance we ever regret is the worldly repentance. And so we pray, God, break my heart over things in my life that do not please you. Break my heart over sins I commit attitudes I have, thoughts I think, ways I react, values or priorities or anything in my life that is not the way you want it to be, break my heart and turn me from the hurtful way. So let's spend time praying for God to break us. Father, tonight we need you to break our hearts over what is displeasing to you in our lives. This world will make our hearts hard. And it will make us resistant to your conviction, resistant to your work in us. We ask you, Father, to break through any hardness in our heart, to take out the calluses that may be forming on our hearts because of the life we've lived, the things that we do that are not the way you want them to be. Make our hearts tender, easily convicted by you about what's wrong. Give us the blessing David had in Psalm 32 where he was miserable over his sin. Let our hearts be easily convicted, easily broken over things in our lives that are not wrong. Make us a people, Father, who tremble at Your Word when we get into the Word and we see things in our lives are not the way Your Word says they ought to be. Father, let us not excuse it or justify it, but let us be brought to deep and serious repentance over this. God, this is not a natural thing. This is not something we can stir up on our own. Only You can bring us to repentance. We need this, Father. 
Let your spirit work among us. Let your spirit take your word and plow up the fallow ground of our hearts. So they would be tender. They would be open and ready to receive the good seed of your word. And it would sink deep in and bring forth good fruit for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And then the final dangerous prayer, lead us. Lead me in the everlasting way. Now, praying for God to lead us has many implications. It means asking God to lead us to get things out of our lives that are displeasing to Him. It means asking God to lead us to to get things in our lives that are pleasing to Him. But it also means asking God to lead us to do exactly what He would have us to do in any given situation in life. It is asking God to lead us in all aspects of our lives in exactly the way He would want us to go. Now, the Bible gives us a way God wants to lead us and a way God doesn't want to lead us. Let me show you the way God doesn't want to lead us. Right, so... Actually, we could get both in this, and so I can cover two things in this and then another verse as well. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will advise you with my eye upon you. But don't be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include a bit and a bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they'll not come near to you. So in this, we do kind of see the way God wants to lead us and the way God doesn't want to lead us. The first part, I'll instruct you with my eye upon you. It pictures, in many ways, having such an intimate relationship with God that He can just look in a direction and we know that's what we're supposed to do. right? It's like, of course, often they had you know, the, the servant and the master relationship where they knew each other well enough, the servant knew the master well enough that they could just look and they knew where they were supposed to go and what they were supposed to do. That, that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us where He doesn't have to, to force us to do His will. He can just say, and we, we go. That's what God wants. What He doesn't want is for us to be stubborn like a mule that is that has to be forced to do His will. Now, He can. God can. Jonah, again, is a great example of that. Jonah had two choices once he got out on the water. He could be digested or he could go to Nineveh. Now, God could do that with us. God could bring negative circumstances into our lives in such a way we we know we have no choice but to do His will. But that's not what God wants to do. The story of Jonah is not the story of a mighty man of God who is devoted to the will of God. And we don't want to be Jonah. What we want to be is so close that our Lord can just give us the slightest nudge And we'll go in the way He wants us to go. And and we go on. He wants us, He wants to lead us in His paths. He wants to lead us in His truth. He wants to teach us. And so we wait all day. Now, this is a great passage because David isn't just praying for God to show him a path in the middle of a problem. I think a lot of times we. Well, we more naturally seek God's leading there. God, I've got a problem here. Show me how to get out of this problem. And, and that's great. We should absolutely do that. 
But that's not what David is praying about here. He's not in the midst of a problem, praying, God, show me the way out of the problem. David is just saying, show me the way you want me to go. Teach me your path. Let your, your truth lead me. I trust you because you're the God who saved me, so I'll wait on you. He's, he just wants God to lead him in every area, in every aspect of his life. And this is what a lead me prayer is. Maybe there is something in your life where you need God's direction. Certainly. Absolutely we pray, God show me what to do about this. But without doubt we need God to lead us in every other area of our lives as well. And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we will only pray for God to lead us in areas where it seem out of our control. Things we can't handle. God, lead me in this, but but I've got this. I've got this well in hand. I don't need you to lead me and show me what to do with this. Right, so an example of areas where we may not pray for God to lead us. And there could be many, but two, I think, that are probably the most common among us as Americans in this time in which we live would be our money and our time. Right? We, we might pray about, lead me with regards to money if we don't have enough. But what if we do? What if our needs are met and we have extra? Do we pray, God, what would you like me to do with all of this that you have given me? I think it's dangerously easy for us to be like the rich man in, in the Gospel of Luke that said, look at all this I've got, I'm just going to... Build, tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store myself up and live at ease. Never questioning, God, what would you have me to do with this great blessing of a harvest you've given me? And I think we, if we have the extra, then probably we're supposed to say, God, what would you have me to do? Another one would be with our time. Our time is precious. Um, and for some people, money may be more precious than time. Time more precious than money. For me, time is much, much more precious. Um, I would much rather give money and go on about my own way and do my own thing as give time. But we all have some extra time. Now, you say, well, I'm really busy. I'm sure we all are busy. But we have time where we watch TV, we take naps, we read books, we play video games, we surf the net. We, we do things that are not... I have to do this to survive. It's extra time. It's free time that we use in one way or another. How often might we say, you know, God, what would you have me to do with this extra time? Is watching TV, playing the video game, surfing the net, watching YouTube videos, is this, is this the, what you would have me to do with my time? And those are just two examples. The point of a lead me prayer is to surrender all of our lives to the Lord. And say, God, my whole life is here before you. Not my, my thoughts, my heart, my will, my feet, my actions, my stuff, my time, my life. All of it is here before you. You lead me in every area to do exactly what you want me to do. And if you show me, I'll go. Now that's the key part of it too. If we're saying, God, lead me, we have to be willing to follow where he leads, because he will lead us. I mean, this is these prayers, all four of these prayers, God will answer. But if I'm praying, God, lead me. 
And I have to be willing to go where he leads because God doesn't pass along that sort of information as something for us to consider. Now, God, I see where you're saying I ought to do that, but I, I just don't know. I don't. That's uncomfortable for me. That's not what I would prefer. Can you lead me in a different area? When God says, go here, do this, do that, God expects we would say, yes, Lord, you are the God of my salvation. I wait on you. I follow you. I trust you and I will go. Lead me prayer is not only God, my life is before you. Show me how to use all of it. But it is also God, I will do whatever it is you show me. So when I take time and pray a, a lead me prayer, I'm going to ask all that would to come to the altars to pray. We'll end with this. Uh, you can come to the altar to pray. You can pray where you are. I just want you to pray. Pray for God to lead us. And when you're through praying, you're dismissed.